Well, I want to start this morning with a quote from a short post published on the Johns Hopkins Medical website. Quote, Whether it's a simple spat with your spouse or a long-held resentment toward a family member or friend, unresolved conflict can go deeper than you may realize. It may be affecting your physical health. The good news, studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels in sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. And research points to an increase in the forgiveness health connection as you age. There is an enormous physical burden to being hurt and disappointed, says Karen Swartz, MD, director of the Mood Disorders Adult Consultation Clinic at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. That's a long title. Chronic anger puts you into a fight-or-flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, and diabetes, among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels, leading to improved health. I want to scream, of course it does. <laughs> of course it does. We've known this for thousands of years. The post is, is entitled, Forgiveness, Your Health Depends on It. Now, we do not need to go to medical school. We do not need letters after our names to know that forgiveness is good. Forgiveness helps us. Forgiveness is healthy. Maybe you've heard this many times that when we hold anger about someone or something in, it only hurts us. The other person's moved on. They're not thinking about you. When you're consumed with thinking about them, they don't care. That anger hurts us, and this is why that article says this, that the science proves this, that when we're angry or bitter or we hold resentment towards someone else, it only affects us. And of course, the Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you are the recipient of the greatest act of forgiveness that the universe has ever seen. You stood before God as a sinner, guilty, worthy of death and condemnation and an eternity apart from God. And yet, God forgave you. God forgave you of all your sins, past, present, and future. God says, no, I don't see those anymore. When I look at you, I see my son. I see a picture. I see Jesus. Your sins are washed away. I've forgotten them. I do not hold you accountable anymore. This is forgiveness at its peak level. And our primary job as a Christian is to make disciples, and we do that by telling people how they can be made right with God, how they can experience the most amazing act of forgiveness imaginable. There's another act of forgiveness, though, for the Christian. See, we talk about this a lot, the vertical between God and us, but... The other aspect is a horizontal one. It's between us as people. See, we're often okay with God forgiving us. We, nobody complains about that. Oh, man, I'm so, I wish you wouldn't have. We are so grateful for what God has done. Every one of our songs is about the forgiveness that God has given to us, and we're grateful for that, but we often forget about the forgiveness between one another. The resentment, the bitterness, all of that that comes with it. 
We are to exemplify forgiveness to one another and to the world. Now, as I was thinking about forgiveness and exemplifying what makes us different as people, I started thinking through, even in some Baptist churches today where they say, well, you can't dance, you can't play cards, you can't listen to anything that's not Southern gospel music. You, you, you can't go to a place that serves alcohol. You definitely don't touch it, right? We, we've heard this, and that, that's what they say. That makes us distinct. That makes us different and unique from the world. The way they dress, the way they act, it's kind of Amish light in a way, isn't it? Now, I'd argue that maybe, yeah, some of those things could hurt someone's testimony, but those are not the things that make us distinct as Christians. So what does... I'd say the most impactful mark of a Christian life would be someone who loves their neighbor and forgives those who hurt them. If you want to know the fruit of a, of a Christian's life, those are the things that they love others and they forgive those who hurt them. It's not a difficult thing for us, but it is difficult to live it out. This morning, we're going to see the opening of a letter uh, from Paul to Philemon, and the theme is forgiveness for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you'll notice that we're not in Genesis anymore. Um, and I want to take a minute just to address that. Uh, for the last 12 weeks, uh, we've been running through the weeds in Genesis, the origin of God's story with humanity. And we've paused that for a few reasons. Well, first, to preach through the entire book of Genesis would be somewhere around 60 sermons. That's a lot for you to listen to me talk about the same book for 60 sermons. And it's also a lot for me to work through those things because themes repeat and all of those, so it's good to take a break. But more importantly, the reason why we jump and we go from book to book, we do 12-week series about, is because I want you to see Jesus in every book of the Bible. That's my goal. Uh, 60 weeks in one book, if you happen to be here with us just for a year, all you're getting is Jesus in Genesis. But I want you to see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. I want you to see Jesus in the Gospels and in the Epistles and in the poetry and the songs and the prophecy and the history. I want you to see that the entire Bible points to Jesus. And so we show Genesis, we show Philemon, and then we'll pick Genesis back up in January. It's fitting. But in the meantime, we'll study Philemon for a few weeks. We're going to study Obadiah, 1 Timothy, and then four weeks in Isaiah for the Advent. And then next year, we'll finish Genesis. We'll go through 1 Timothy. We'll go through Amos and begin Hebrews and Ecclesiastes, all to point you to Jesus so you can say, I've read the word, I know the word, and I see Jesus on every single page. This is the point. This is all done so we see Jesus as the central theme. The audience, the times, and cultures were different, but every biblical author is shoving us, is pushing us, is throwing us in the direction of Jesus. And we see this in Philemon as well. The book of Philemon is short. It's only one chapter with 25 verses, and because of that, it's one of the least read books of the Bible. But don't let that fool you. It's powerful. It's packed with truth and encouragement. And in fact, the main idea of Philemon is one of the main ideas of the Christian faith, and we'll see this much more, much more next week. But the main idea is forgiveness. 
Not just saying, yeah, I forgive you. Like we do with our children when someone does something, when a kid does something wrong, we, we tell our child, what do you say? I'm sorry, I forgive you. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a full force reconciliation where someone hurts someone else and the one who is hurt says, come home, brother. This is the, the, the idea of Philemon and it is at the root of the gospel message that God welcomes us as his children where we were once his enemies. This is the, the point of what Paul's writing. Now, he's in prison at this point in Rome. He was visited by a man named Epaphras who was a, a pastor. And he's coming from the, the, lar, uh, the western part of what's now modern-day Turkey, and the churches there were facing incredible difficulties. The churches then, like today, were facing trials both inside the church and from outside. And Paul, as a prisoner, wrote this letter. And he wrote another letter to the same church, and it's the book of Colossians. And he sends this letter, the main letter, Colossians, he sends it to the, the church in Colossae. And the men who took this letter over a thousand miles over land were Tychicus and Onesimus. In Colossians 4, as Paul closes the letter, he writes this to the church. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, to, uh, or we, how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, one Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. All well and good, except for one thing. Onesimus is a slave. And he was a slave not just of any person, he was a slave of an influential church member in Colossae, a man by the name of Philemon. If you've read Colossians, Paul talks about a lot of theological things. He, he talks about the preeminence of Christ, rejoicing in suffering, putting on the new self, its doctrine and instruction for the Christian life. But as Paul is spending time with this runaway slave who happens to come to Rome and he God's sovereignty pulls him to Rome, and, and Onesimus is there talking to Paul. Paul hears that he ran away. Not an easy journey to run, and we'll unpack this more next week, but the letter to Philemon is Paul's plea to a Christian brother named Philemon to forgive Onesimus. It's not just forgiveness, though, for running away. That Paul seeks. Paul pleads with Philemon to welcome Onesimus back, not just as, okay, you know what, I forgive you, I'm not going to punish you for running away, come on back. No, he says, welcome him back as a brother. I want you to think about that. Not only is this a really heartwarming story that Paul is, is pleading with Philemon to, to accept him back, this is our story. This is us. Do you not know that before you came to know Christ, you were running in the opposite direction as fast as you could? And the gospel says, no. Do you know who's right behind you? Do you know who's been chasing you? Do you know who's ready to, to come and welcome you and to take you back home, but not to take you back home and punish you for what you've done, to take you back home and give you food, to give you shelter, to give you love, to give you a family. This book mirrors the gospel. It's not entirely spelled out here, but 
It's likely that Onesimus was converted to the faith through Paul, and if he was not converted, it was clear that Paul discipled him. Paul taught him proper theology, but also how to apply it. This is discipleship. It's walking with someone in the faith. And all of this is important because it gives color to Paul's letter, and we see this spelled out in verses 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner for, Jesus, or for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Do you see what Paul calls himself? Look at this. In other letters, he calls himself an apostle or a servant. Here, he does something different. He says, I am a prisoner. Again, he's a prisoner in Rome at this moment. Now, every time I read a book and I'm studying a new book, I think, what would I do in that situation? I can tell you, if I was unfairly prisoned for preaching the gospel, I would not be happy. I'd get my metal cup and I'd scrape it across the prison bars. I'd yell as loud as I could. I'd make everyone miserable, hope, hoping against hope that they would send me away. Paul would not have been happy to lose his freedom. He says, he says he, he's, he's happy. He never says that he's happy in this situation. Uh, and he, but he recognizes that he's there for a reason. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So the Apostle Paul, who understands God's sovereignty, God uses him to write so many letters, almost half of the New Testament. Paul says, we despaired that we were even alive. In other words, we wish we were dead. We, we wish that we weren't here. This is so bad for us that we wish that we could just die right now. But in that same letter, he writes that he found contentment. Why? Because he understood that God will use all those things that he sees as negative or painful for God's own glory. 2 Corinthians 12. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knows his imprisonment is all part of God's plan. God is in control of all things, and this includes the prison bars that kept him locked away. And you say, well, wait, what is that? Look at Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were locked away in prison. Who opened the prison doors? Who gave Paul and Silas the strength to stay locked away when they could have run away? And who changed the heart of that jailer? This is God's sovereignty on display here. Paul says that not only was he in prison, but he uses this word prisoner because it carries an added emphasis of how Onesimus was a slave. Paul is in prison, but that is not what defines him. He is defined by who he truly belongs to, and it's not the emperor of Rome. Paul belongs to Jesus. And he says, as he unfolds this letter, and he's writing it out, he's saying Onesimus may be the legal property of Philemon, but now Onesimus belongs to Jesus too. Now, while we know Paul and Timothy, we'll learn more about Philemon, uh, there are a couple names in verse 2 that you probably don't know, but they're worth noting. Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, but also to Apphia, who is likely the wife of Philemon. This is a sign of respect because Apphia, if she is the wife of Philemon, is a partner with her husband. 
They're one flesh, and it echoes what we've seen throughout Paul's other writings, the importance of women in the church. In Romans 16.1, Paul calls Phoebe a deacon. The, the literal word in Greek is deacon, a servant in the church. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul talks about the qualifications of a deacon, and some of your translations will say, and their wives, but if you look at the Greek, it just says women. Taken together, Paul has a high view of women in the church. They were and are pivotal to the health of the church. They serve with the men, and they are valued. Apphia was likely an influential woman in the church, and Paul acknowledges that here. According to tradition, Apphia and Philemon were stoned to death for unapologetically serving Christ. The other name listed in verse 2 is Archippus. Paul calls him our fellow soldier. He was someone who, like a good soldier, was fully devoted to his mission, the work of Christ, and according to tradition, he was stabbed to death by a violent mob during the reign of Nero. Now, there's one more thing I want you to see in verse 2. Look at the last few words. Paul says that the church met in their house. You say, well, okay, well, it's a house church, big deal. Well, think about what was going on in the early church. People were huddled together. People were hiding. People were uh, living next to each other so that they could worship with each other daily, that they could read the word daily. They could go in the, the temples and evangelize daily. They lived life together. Their churches were not built on buildings, ministries for all ages. They were not built on professional musicians or professional pastors. These were Christians who lived to proclaim the gospel. And you know what happened? The church grew. There's no gimmicks. They didn't have air conditioning, they didn't have lights, they didn't have a fancy P, uh, a projector, they didn't have a, a wonderful PA system, they didn't have all of the things that we just say, that's normal. They were meeting in each other's homes, sharing meals together, crying together, confessing their sins together. The church knew their calling and they grew because of it. They, they understood that their calling was to go into all the world, beginning right where they were, to proclaim the gospel. Now, there are churches that meet in homes today. There aren't many, though. There isn't anything magical about meeting in a home. But I think part of the reason this new church, this young church, these early churches grew to the point where how many Christians are here today? Billions, millions, I don't know what the numbers is, but there's a lot. And it grew from next to nothing. Why? Because the people shared life together. They loved one another. They welcomed people into their homes and they, 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 they had meals with them. We can go to a coffee shop, we can go to a restaurant, we can meet here at the church, but it's not the same thing as you and I sitting in your home or in my home and sharing a meal. And spending time with one another. The location of the gathering didn't matter as much as what they were doing when they gathered. It was a close-knit family that shared all that they had so none would go without we can't go back 2,000 years, certainly, and I don't think any of us would really want to. But we can look to the early church example here of what we ought to do as a body. See, this is, this is why Paul is so concerned with what's happening in the church. You've got Philemon, who's probably wealthy. He, he has Onesimus as his slave. But the unity of the church is slowly breaking apart. 
The church with people new to the faith were torn between the law, the letter of the law, and the spirit of what God's word says. You've got law and order on one side and you've got grace and mercy on the other. It's hard to imagine how difficult this must have been for the church. And, and, and during their gathered meetings, maybe those who supported Philemon stood up and said, Onesimus broke the rules. He needs to come back and be punished for it. And then others say, well, we found out that he's a believer now. He's a follower of Christ. We need to welcome him home. Paul's letter tells the church that it gets even more complicated. Onesimus is a Christian now. He's a follower of Christ, so he's not to be seen as a slave anymore. He's a brother. He's a member of the church. Now, from a 21st century perspective, this all seems fairly obvious. It's, it's not something that we deal with often. I, I've never met someone who owns a slave, so I don't know what that would be like, certainly. But I do know that our church and our community is largely homogenous. And what I mean by that is that we're all kind of the same. You can look around and see, yeah, it's very clear that we're almost all the same. We enjoy the same things. We look alike. We vote alike. We, 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 we sound alike. We, we enjoy the same things. And, and, and many people will say, well, that's why we moved here, right? We moved from this state to this state because people think more like us in this new state. We move from this community to this community because they have the same values that we have and we're getting out of a bad place to go to what we call a good place. But the church in Colossae resembled not what we experience. The church in Colossae was, was more diverse. Most of these young churches were very diverse because they were bringing in people who were Jews and Gentiles, pagans and, and atheists and all of those things. When they came to know Christ, they were brought into the church. We, we see this in the book of Galatians is mostly about this idea of Jews and Gentiles fighting in the church. There was racial issues and animosity. Differences in opinion on how things should be done. The church in Colossae had free people and slaves. Yet people converting from all sorts of religions and anytime a congregation is built like this, there's going to be problems. And it's true what Martin Luther King said, that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week for Christians. And the reality is, uh, there's a history to that, but the, the reality is that we have a tendency to look for people who are like us. People who think like us. People who act like us. People who vote like us. People who like the same things that we like. It's comfortable. When you start adding people to a family or a congregation with different perspectives, and, and I can prove it to you, find someone who votes differently than you, and at Thanksgiving this year, bring up politics at the table and see what happens. I love doing that. Right? It's not comfortable. Everybody starts to squirm, and everybody, nobody wants to be there. Everything is peaceful when everybody's the same. The early church didn't have that choice. They were converted to Christ and brought into a brand new family. And how did they do that? This is what families do. They spent time together. They ate together. They sang together. It wasn't just Sunday morning. This was daily. 
And Paul knows that he's in a position to help this church get through this rough patch. Because the natural reaction for many people in the church would be to say, Onesimus needs to be punished. That's the law and order crowd. He did something he shouldn't, and the heavy hand of the law needs to come down on him, whatever that may be. And Paul's argument that we'll see more next week is that grace and mercy is better. Welcoming a brother or sister of Christ should always be the first option. In fact, that's what needs to be celebrated. Paul is saying, that's your story too. You were slaves. You were slaves to sin. And God welcomed you. God loved you. God cares for you. Now do the same, Philemon. Do the same, church in Colossae. All this to say this letter is important because a possible split is emerging which threatens to damage the church. Well, then in verse 3 we see Paul's plea, which prepares the readers for the verses that come after. He says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A, a typical greeting. Same thing you see in Colossians 1, but it's not an empty phrase. Paul is, is saying, I earnestly desire for you to know, I want you to know that I love you and that the grace of God can come upon you and peace in the church. This is kind of underscoring everything that Paul's written. The gospel shines brightest in the church when we're united in the gospel. And then he continues in verses four, five, and seven. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because, of, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul says that he thanks God always when he remembers those people. He knows he's stepping around landmines here, isn't he? One of the, the difficulties of being in any leadership, but especially in church leadership, is that there are many days, and I'd even argue maybe most days, that you feel you have to kind of tiptoe around things. Because the natural reaction in churches, anytime you gather a group of people, you're going to have some people who want it this way, some people who want it this way, and other people who want it this way, and then you have people who don't care. And, and so all of those groups you're trying to walk around carefully so that you don't offend someone, so that you don't hurt their feelings, so you don't get them upset, so they, they leave the church. We, we try our best to not do that. We don't want anybody to leave. And so Paul is tiptoeing like that. He, he's trying to, to be careful around those landmines. But, but listen to what he says here. He says, I thank God always, always, when I remember you. This is more than just friendship. This is Christian love. And if we're telling the truth, some of us are harder to love than others. I, I know that firsthand. The church in Colossae was in a bad spot and needed some guidance that would certainly make some people upset. Anytime a leader makes a decision of any company, of any team, of any church, anytime a leader makes a decision, he knows or she knows that there will be fallout for that, that there will be people who don't like it. And so what happens is some people can't handle that, and so they run. And unfortunately, other people look at it as, I'm going to get my way, and they steamroll over people.
I want you to see the care that Paul has for these people. He's giving a, a, a helpful correction. He, he's trying to guide Philemon, and, and, and at first glance, Philemon may have been pretty upset for getting this letter. We have no idea. He's being told, hey, man, you can't do this. You shouldn't be doing this anymore. But I want you to see how pastoral Paul is here. I'm reminded of, other Paul's, of Paul's other writings when he had to call out someone. Um, not a fun thing to be in. But Paul shows that he is a good leader and someone who a good leader makes decisions but is more than that. He doesn't just lead well. The church knows him. The church knows that he's genuine. I want you to think back. Maybe at this church, do not shout it out, but it may be this church, it may be another church that you were part of. Um, when leadership, whether it's the senior pastor, the lead pastor, whatever you want to call it, or the elders as a whole receive criticism. Think through how you felt if you had a close relationship with one of those leaders. Were you quick to jump in? Of course not. Why? Because you can say, I know his heart. I know him. I've, he's visited me at the hospital. Those elders have prayed over me. Those elders have done everything they could, right? You, you could say, no, I may not agree with something, but that doesn't matter because I know them. I know that leader, and I will follow. As long as they're not leading me into sin, I will follow. And then say, this is the, the vibe that Paul's giving. He's saying, Philemon, I love you, man. You know that I love you. I got some tough things to tell you, but I want you to know how much I love you all. Sincerely coming from Paul. The opposite would be the modern equivalent of sending an angry email or a nasty text. Or coming up to someone uh, out, of the, out of the blue and giving them a list of grievances. But Paul, a thousand miles away, writes that he knows Philemon, he knows how influential he is, he knows in the church that he is someone that people look to for guidance. And Paul says, I'm grateful for your gospel work. And that work has reached me all the way in Rome. A cynic would say this, well, he's just buttering him up. He's, he's giving some, some pleasantries before he gives the, the bad news. I don't see that. I think Paul is making sure that Philemon understands that everything is coming from a place of genuine care for Philemon Onesimus in the Colossian church. And I believe that because that's what Paul writes in all of his other letters. He has roots in all of these churches. He's planting churches. He's discipling pastors. He's sending people out to start new churches. He cares. And finally, in verse 6, we see Paul's prayer. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Um, the ancient city of Colossae probably had a similar population to Alcoa and Maribel combined. The difference would be the densities that people then were packed in tighter than we are today. And, and so I started thinking through, like, if there was a major controversy in our church, how quickly would everyone know about it? Now, if you're in New York City or L.A. or a big city, most people don't care. In a place like Blount County, the word travels fast. 
By the time I get home, I'd probably have my neighbors to ask me questions. Now, now think about the ancient city of Colossae, which doesn't exist anymore, but, but the ancient city of Colossae uh, was packed in tight. It, it was like all of those ancient cities that you see when you, you, you go to the, the Middle East or you go to um, some European country and you go through the old part of town and you see apartments that are really dense. You see that, that, that stores and shops and everything kind of focused in on a city center where everyone gathered. This is a place where the gossip spread quickly. Now here's why I'm, I'm, I'm saying this. Because Paul says, I, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Why does he say this? And here's what I believe that he's saying this. is because what's happening inside the church between Philemon and Onesimus is going to spread throughout the entire city. Your reputation is done. Uh, you can think about church scandals that you've heard about. I mean, th th there are influential churches that have thousands upon thousands visiting that do not exist today. In less than a decade, the church goes from 10,000 to zero. Why? Scandal. Pastoral abuse. And Paul is saying, Philemon... You've got to be careful about this because this message is going to spread throughout Colossae. Everyone's going to know your reputation is damaged forever. You can't come back from that. Paul's prayer is that the testimony of the Christians in Colossae would not be damaged. And Paul's point in these opening seven verses has been to prepare Philemon and every Christian, us included, afterwards for the message that's coming and that message that we'll see next week is forgiveness and reconciliation see Philemon had every legal right to demand the return of Onesimus but the Christian recognizes that Christ has turned the law upside down Philemon's right weren't of much concern for Paul 1 Corinthians 9 shows us that Paul says that he's free to do whatever he wants as long as it's not sinful but if it's damaging or hurtful to someone else he's going to say I don't need to do it I'm going to stop for your sake that's the heart of our faith it's forgiveness after Jesus said the Lord's prayer he said this Matthew 6 for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Paul's point in just these seven verses is the gospel. Philemon is about the gospel. If Jesus' work of the cross on the cross is wiped away, uh, or Jesus' work on the cross wiped away the debt that we owed, we must forgive those who have hurt us. You've got to think that Philemon would have suffered financially if Onesimus never returned. He was a slave, an employee, whatever you want to call it, but, but, but Philemon had the rights to Onesimus. But Paul says Onesimus is now a brother in Christ. He's a fellow heir. He's a child of God. If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. You've been made a child of the king of creation. And so the question is, what do you do with that? Philemon would have to decide whether he demands his slave to return or whether he runs after his former slave. 
whether he puts him back to work or whether he welcomes him in as a brother. And the only two questions that I have on this, and this is what I want to close on, which option do you think gives God the most glory? And which of those choices presents the gospel to the world outside of the church? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the